Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Something a bit different and special today. I was honored to participate in a forum for the book launch of Jane McAlevey's new book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, last week in Toronto. Uh, Me and Steph Ross, a labor studies professor at McMaster University here in Hamilton, co-moderated a panel with Jane where rather than having Jane speak, we simply asked questions about the book Uh, and got her to answer them and in the meantime lay out some of the main arguments and some of the main disputes and challenges that she uh, poses to the labor movement. So what follows is a recording of that talk. It's about an hour long. Uh, We didn't even get to ask half of our questions. The discussion was great Uh, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Um, So maybe we could start by um, talking a little bit about what I think is the uh, one of the main distinctions that you make in the book and that um, when you were here before and you presented at York University that I think you were working on, which is the distinction that you make between the mobilizing model and the, and the organizing model. So the mobilizing model that has become a, associated with, you know, those parts of the labor movement that are, you know, identified with uh, uh, organizing new members in large numbers. Um, But you have a a very particular critique of the model that they use to do that versus the the model that you put forward in the book. And so maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about the distinction between those two approaches to organizing workers. Um, And and maybe also talk a little bit about the dichotomy that you draw. And I I have some maybe follow-up probing questions about about that dichotomy and the extent to which um, perhaps it's a bit stark or maybe how it might be reframed. So maybe it would just turn to you and say, like, maybe we could talk about the distinction that you make um, and we can probe a little bit into that after you respond. Great. Um, thank you. So first of all, let me just say hi. hi. I'll try it again. Hi. Hi. Okay, great. Hi. Um, uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you both for having read the book. Let's quiz them. What's on page? No, I'm kidding. Um, thank you very much for being here and reading the book. And thank all of you for actually being here at night. You know, there's like a million things to do, including just take a nap if you're in the United States. Everyone's in fetal position right now in the U.S., just curled up in a ball still. So it's nice to see people out. Um, I sort of mean that, actually. But... We've been mostly trying to get everyone back up off the ground uh, in fetal position in the corner in their rooms, which is where most of the uh, people like you are um, sitting in the United States. So uh, how do we fight? Um, How do we fight him? How do we fight them? How do we actually win and not keep getting our heads uh, taken off um, in all sorts of ways? So um, I think the – I think I say in the beginning of the book that it's not just the theme of the book. It's sort of my life obsession at this point. Um, is sort of this question of, I think everyone thinks they're organizing. Like everywhere I go, people are like, oh yeah, I'm organizing. We're organizing. I'm organizing. It's a word that is used and misused the way democracy is, or any number of terms that are just out there that are really vague. And so 
they sound good and we're all doing them. Um, and part of what I concluded after you know, about 20 years um, of organizing work with trade unions in the U.S. is that uh, I started in a very, very good union. That is a union that's doing what I think of as deep organizing. And I'll, I'll come to the distinctions in a couple of, in, in a minute, I hope, about what they are. So I came out of a union, and I think when you're young and you're having your first experience, you just assume this is everyone's doing it. Wow, this, this was, oh, I joined the labor movement. It's fantastic. You know, and then I got put into a different position, well, elevated, right, in the union, and I began to quickly realize what everyone says they're doing this thing that we were doing, but actually there's no evidence that they are doing it. Um, so what is that? What is that distinction? Um, for me, the central question uh, that separates organizing from mobilizing is who is the agent for change? Like with whom does the strategy for change actually lie is the fundamental question. Um, and I want to argue that what's happened in the U.S. is that there was always sort of a category called service. Like you, people know what service and charity work is. No one's pretending that that's organizing work. Generally, we know what charity is, you know, or sort of straight service work, which there's a role for. Plenty of it, right? New immigrants in the country, whatever. Lots of homeless shelters. There's a lot of reasons why we need some direct services, some things that look more like charity. Um, and then there was always sort of advocacy, which is more like a Greenpeace or sort of like organizations that are, you have a subscribership to, you pay them money and they go off and they fight on your behalf. In the U.S., there's lots of them, Ralph Nader's empires. Um, Greenpeace comes to mind again as another one. I'm trying to think of ones that are also here. Um, and then everyone else says that what they're doing is organizing because if you involve ordinary people at some level, then you sort of assume that you're organizing. And that's what I'm trying to call out in the book and challenge. I, I think that we have grown up a model called mobilizing. And the mobilizing model looks better than the advocacy model, definitely better than a service or charity model in terms of like, are we actually trying to contest for fundamental power? Um, but the mobilizing model as it's developed in the US, which is what I think most people, most people say I'm organizing and I'm trying to say you're actually mobilizing. Um, it assumes several things. It assumes that you, in the model in the US, it assumes that it's, if there's staff in the organizations, it's a staff driven model. If there aren't professional staff, it's, an, it's what I'm going to call an activist-driven model. Um, it's fundamentally about, it's fundamentally not trying to engage what I call the vast undecideds. Um, and it's a model that's trying to get better and better at the technology of what I call turnout. Um, but we're not any longer going out and actually radically empowering ordinary people who we've probably not met before, trying to engage them in a process of what I call self-discovery, of people actually coming to their own conclusions about what's really wrong in the world and who's really oppressing them and why they're really oppressed. Um, so self-discovery is key in the model, I think, when you're doing real organizing work. The focus on people who are not yet in our movement, like who wouldn't be self-selecting to come out to this talk tonight, right? This is more of a, we're, we're having an activist discussion together. Um, but at the center of it, the distinction is are ordinary, in the case of trade unions, are ordinary workers actually at the center of decision making and are they, are they the central actors in the effort? Uh, and I think in the US we've gotten very good at saying that, but it's not really true. So we have staff heavy models where we go out and talk to workers, you know, we bring them along, but we get a handful of them, they're what I call telegenic, I actually got that word from an uh, I won't pick on any one union right now in the U.S., but uh, from N, from A Union, of which I used to do a lot of work, uh, they actually use the word telegenic. 
We have to find some telegenic workers, right? That means workers who look good for TV cameras or if they're testifying in front of the legislature. Um, they're heavily scripted. We train them. We have professional message folks do the messaging for them, teach them how to present in public, about why they need a union. But the campaign itself is relying more on a top-down approach, more on a corporate campaign, more on um, sort of whacking uh, a corporation or an entity with some kind of sideways leverage that involves no workers at all, um, and then having a handful of workers who sort of, you know, look good, um, uh, so that the boss can't say this is really just a union, you know, actually trying to organize the place. So, yeah. Anyway, the distinction for me is who is really, who are the central actors in the key plot, which is cha social change. Um, and I think for me, organizing means that workers have to have the primary agency in the struggle and in the mobilizing model staff or pro sort of professional activists of some kind um, have more agency than ordinary people in the model itself. Okay. okay, so Jane, could you talk a little bit more then about, I mean, you know, about the way that, um, that, the ordinary folks, like the undecided, right? The, the 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 mass membership of a union, say, or a uh, a workplace that is is contemplating unionize. How in in the deep organizing model they are the protagonists. So, um, because I would say that I mean this is maybe going off a bit of my first question, but I would say that in reading the book um, and in reading the case studies, in in many respects, professional staff still are primary protagonists in a lot of the, um, the examples that you explore, the case studies that you explore. Um, it, it, it's, it seems clear to me that, that these efforts don't happen without the role of staff dis and acti an activist cadre um, having some control over key strategic and tactical decisions about where resources are going to be allocated, about which, uh, which workers are, uh, are going to be uh, exposed to leadership development, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering if we could talk a bit more specifically about how that process is different in the organizing model. Because I, and we would probably agree, like I, I, I have never taken the position that there isn't a, a role for, an important role for leaders and staff, whether, whether they're elected staff or staff. Um, but I, I wonder if we're, um, we're, we're not being specific enough about the relationship between those different groups within the union to be able to elucidate the distinction that you're making. Do you, is that, is that, <coughs> does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yes, and I think it raises several things that I feel a little bit awkward, like I'm turning my back to Mark to look at Stephanie. I don't want to turn my back to Mark, sorry. Um, or to you or anyone else, uh, for that matter. Actually, I do want to turn my back to some people, starting with the present elect of our country. But um, <laughs> so um, I, I think it is... I think a few things come out of that question which are good. One, uh, I'm definitely not anti-staff. There's certainly a, some set of people in the movement who have sort of an anti-staff position. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely not anti-staff. The question for me is what's the role of the staff and what's the role of the rank and file leadership? It's what's the role that each of the component parts that make up um, you know, serious comprehensive campaigns, let's say large scale efforts, uh, what's the role of each? That I think is really central. Um, and rather than be um, sort of theoretical, I think in talking about it, I think I'm just going to try and give a couple of examples of a, a really clear distinctions in the model. 
Um, so one is fresh for me because I am uh, deep in it right now. <laughs> I have actually gone back in the field and have been in a very intense organizing campaign for many months where the workers are winning. Um, and uh, so the distinctions are kind of fresh again. It was nice to like write, then, I mean, do a lot of 20 years of work and then write the first book and then go to grad school and think for a little while and then go right back in the field again, which is what this year has been for me. Um, and then it's like just pause now. I've just transitioned back out of uh, playing a key leading role in the campaign because it's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm a postdoc at Harvard and Harvard just reminded me I'm teaching starting soon. So I had to leave running a big campaign, which has been really fun. But so the distinctions that are fundamental for me, I think are, one, is it a majority strategy? So there's a handful of things I want to raise. One is, is it a majority strategy, by which I mean are a majority of the workers being engaged? Like a significant majority. Like is there an attempt that actually all workers for a given employer, let's say it's one hospital, one plant, one something, but are we explicitly building, attempting to build a majority strategy? Um, or is it actually, in theory, a minority strategy? I don't, you know, minority I mean by like a minority of the workers. Um, so one question is minority-majority strategy. I think by definition when it's a, a minority strategy, you're by definition having a staff-run organization. Um, and a lot of what's happened in the U.S. are, because of, the, because of the nature of the corporate campaign, because so much of the effort is vested in, uh, there's carrots and sticks is the big theory in the discussions, right? Because so much of the campaign has shifted to sticks, meaning like um, rooms full of researchers, sitting at the top echelons of the union headquarters, figuring out how to attack the pension, uh, you know, the pension fund, how to increase their taxes, how to take down the government subsidies, how to do brand damage overall, how to find, you know, if it's a hospital, you know, the like pregnant mother they just killed or whatever and then went and collected on her husband because he didn't pay the bill. Like the tactical warfare in most campaigns in the U.S. now is surrounded by everything I just described to you. And they call it brand damage um, and they call it the corporate campaign. And so by definition, those campaigns are not majority worker campaigns. Workers are seen as almost a sort of an afterthought in the campaign. That's where the telegenic worker model comes in. Um, and they're all about getting a big organizing rights accord. They're about getting a deal. I'm not opposed to deals, by the way. I've helped negotiate some deals, but we could get into a long discussion about what's, what goes in a deal and who's involved in the deal, right? What, there's deals and there's deals. So, but what's come to be typical in the U.S. is what I'm challenging in the new book. Because um, these typical deals rely heavily on brand damage, corporate campaigns, le what's called leverage strategies. There's no workers involved in any of this. Um, there's none. There's no worker sitting in the high echelon of the research department where there's 12 guys with a high-speed computer and a lot of caffeine figuring out how to screw the company. There's no workers consulted whatsoever. So if you, if you, if you sort of say in the kind of campaigns that I have been more involved in, including now, um, uh, some people in this room know there's like zero researchers in the campaign, which is another extreme. Maybe some days in the week it'd be good to have a little bit of research done. But um, in the campaigns that I've mostly been involved in, including the one I've been involved in the summer, they're incredibly worker-centric. They're worker-heavy. The basic theory of the campaign is class struggle, and it's a majority worker theory. And that's a huge difference between a bunch of guys with a bunch of caffeine doing brand damage to a company where the workers are called in later versus like we're going to go actually and build a committee, old-fashioned, we're going to identify, we're going to talk to lots of workers, we're going to actually build an organizing committee, that's a real organizing committee. Uh, we're going to attempt to have the organizing committee be the real organizers, like the rank-and-file organizers of their actual co-workers. We're going to teach and train and develop 
the people who are organic leaders, and I'd say one thing differently than the way you said it, we don't choose who the organic leaders are. So in a majority bottom-up class struggle kind of model that I'm describing, um, it's anything but that we're picking the sort of telegenic or first person who comes to talk to us, right? In the model, we are in fact letting the workers themselves decide who their leadership is, and then building a committee of worker leaders from the conversations with, in our case, the summer thousands of workers, um, and then that committee, that organic leadership committee, is the committee that someone like myself or the organizers in the model of professional staff will then spend all of our time really intensely trying to develop further the, the skill, the skill set. Because they're already leaders, they already have the respect of their coworkers, they are leaders. But we're going to zero in on trying to develop the capacity of those ordinary people who their coworkers have decided are really their leaders. Um, and then we're going to, you know, it's going to be a supermajority campaign. We're going we're gonna to have them start engaging through a coaching process of, like, what are the first steps we have to do? We have to, it's going to be risk-taking. The opening conversations about how there's a lot of risk involved here. Um, it's the opposite of what I hear happen a lot of times um, in a lot of union drives. Like, no problem. It's going to be super safe. You know, come on together. Like, so these conversations are, um, uh, are very much about... Um, if you want to form a union in this way, uh, the first thing you should know is you might get fired. Uh, the second thing you should know is you might have to go on strike to get your first contract. Um, but the conversation is built around a very honest conversation that the role of the professional organizer in our model, and in what I call a bottom-up kind of model, um, is that we're coaches and we're here to teach and assist. Um, and you, and you know, even the language I was just writing down, you and your versus we, so many sub-debates in the world of organizing, but like one that I think also goes to this question is even the semantics and the language that we use. I spent a lot of time this summer in a, um, training a bunch of organizers and training and developing shitloads. Sorry, lots of, um, any small people here? Uh, lots of worker leaders um, in the campaign. Um, and even the semantics of the language, like I'm very clear when I'm working with workers and I'm teaching people who are working with workers, that if I'm talking to the worker committee, I say, look, it's what you and your coworkers to decide. It's very different than people who use we, like pronouns are a big deal, I think. Like we is much more common in the mobilizing model where staff just assume they're the same as the workers and we're all together and here's what we're going to do in the contract fight to win. And um, even that distinction might seem small, but it's definitely not small. Um, if you mean what you're doing. So uh, whenever I'm having a conversation at negotiations with you know, a bunch of workers in the room, someone will say, we want this in the pension, and the boss is saying, we're going to get this in the pension. And I'll say, look, the truth is, it's entirely up to you and your coworkers, because I'm not going to live under this contract. So I'm going to have a very honest, transparent relationship with you. This is your contract fight. I'm living under a different contract, right? I'm not pretending to be who you are. So I'm going to tell you what the implications are, and I'm going to tell you how much power you're going to have to build to beat the boss on the pension. And I'm going to tell you the steps that are probably going to work for you to do it. And we'll coach you on how to do it. But it's ultimately you and your coworkers who are going to make the decision to do this or not. Um, so those are like some key elements. And then I think lastly, I would say, I mean, one is I, don't, I, I want to go away from the word model just because I, I, I prefer to use organizing, like the word approach. I think the whole word model is also one that I'm getting. It's like, just like a buzzword out there. So, but an approach that puts the workers at their center of the campaign versus an approach that put workers as an afterthought or a sideshow, which is the corporate campaign heavy model that's come to dominate. Um, among the unions that are still trying, I would argue, right? There's a whole bunch of unions who aren't even trying, but of the unions who are still trying, the corporate campaign model, which I think by definition makes workers the least important player in the overall campaign and the overall negotiation, it's just a really different model. And 
Um, I don't think it, I think it revealed, I think it's revealed itself 20 years later as having not helped most workers in the United States know who to even vote for when they walk into the polling booth. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, it's, it, it's not that there isn't staff involved in a very crucial way in, in all the approaches that are actually winning in the U.S., but it's a fundamental question of who's really making decisions, how do we know they're making decisions? I think you can know by some of the things I just described. And if you carry it into even the negotiations, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book um, that I sort of practice in real life and always have and I'm doing again right now is what we call big, open, democratic, transparent negotiations. So to me, that's like another example of how you know where the agency for change or the agency for decision making really lies is in how we do negotiations. Um, and the negotiations I'm leading uh, right now, there are thousands of workers involved. Um, and every one of them has a right to walk into the negotiations every day. Any worker, any time can come in, go out, leave, stay. Um, and our goal is to try and get every single worker uh, at negotiations at least once so that they come to really understand what it meant to form a union. So that's, that speaks to the sort of more bottom-up side of the model. Okay. Um, I just I want to follow up on a couple of things that you said, but and I think that um, Michal, yeah, Michal also has some similar questions yeah. about some of these issues. So let me just say, like I, I think actually pronouns are very important, and I'm glad that you said that. But I think that also um, how you how you put it is a bit counterintuitive because um, I know for myself, uh, I would invoke the we when we're in a kind of a collective project together. And I always, I have kind of an allergic reaction to people who use you as a way to kind of distance themselves from the collective project when they're saying, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. But I, I certainly can, can, even though we're in the same fight, right? So I, I just think that's an interesting distinction about how we use language to frame like who has ownership or responsibility over, um, over the work. Um, so I, I mean, that's just a, a kind of a reaction to what you said. But I definitely think how we talk about our collective work is really quite important because it conveys certain things about who's in charge, who's not, who's responsible, who's not responsible, etc. I also I, just on that one yeah. thing, I just want to be super clear. I've, I've never said the word you need in my whole life as an organizer. So you need cool. is not the sentence. Cool. The sentence is you want this change in the pension. I can give you some sense of how much power you have to build if you and your coworkers want to make that change. Right. I have never said to a worker in my entire life, you need to go do the following. The key decision about agency is quite a different question about you and your coworkers. It's, um, we're in a deep conversation. We've just done, I'll take one hospital. We've done surveys out of a thousand worker unit. Um, uh, we say no less than 65% have to fill them in before we decide to start electing the negotiations teams, et cetera. And all the committees are elected, big open committees. Um, and it's at that point, once, once the workers have said, here's the, like, the top 10 things that they really want changed um, in the contract, it's not, here's what you need to go do. It's a deep conversation where I'm saying, okay, based on my experience, we're going to need X amount of power to achieve like a defined benefit pension in the U.S. at this point, which almost no one has, right? Um, and the question's real, the, the phraseology, again, matters and it's really different. And it's not what you need to do. It's, um, this is what you're saying you want to do. It's a great thing that you want to do. Um, I'm going to give you a sense of how much power is required if that's what you and your coworkers want to do. And then it's entirely your choice, right? So the, 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 the mindset of a coach 
is really different than mm-hmm. like that's a to me that's like a leader that's like a that's a different role um, than the very didactic process that we're involved in, which is really about here's a series of choices um, that you and your coworkers can make. Um, so I just want no, to push back on that. No, yeah. I think that's an important clarification actually, because I think that uh, activist language often does use the the I, to go do yes I sell think, my newspaper yeah, yeah. yeah. very yeah. yeah very different very different use of the word you and your coworkers. So wh- why don't you go ahead? And, do you want, yeah. Okay, well. I have a question that kind of zooms out of that one step, but I think kind of builds off of it. So it's, you know, assume that we have this other approach that also needs staff and also needs buy-in from the, from the union, right? So at some point you write in the book, three core practices distinguish the two, you write models, let's say approaches. Um, the purpose of the union, the power analysis defining the fight, which I essentially take to mean the model you're going to use and the union's governance method. And I think, you know, a a bit of a chicken and egg problem develops here though, right? Because how do we change the purpose of the union and put the necessary resources towards organizing, which we've now said that we actually need and we do need the staff need to be doing this without changing at the same time the governance structures, right? And democratizing the union and reforming it. Um, And how do we do that without a revitalized rank and file within the union that will also, you know, how do you get the bottom-up organizing method in the union that isn't bottom-up, right? What's the strategy for those hoping to change the labor movement, essentially, which is what this approach requires, right? Either you're lucky and you're at the right place at the right time and learned the right model, or you need something broader, right? Yeah. Um, in my experience, the way that most of the change has happened to go from having a, uh, to the, uh, either a just, a, you know, sort of moribund union or a very top-down union, um, the only way it's ever happened in a significant way, in my experience, um, is through crisis. It's when there's a crisis. It's when there's a crisis, which is everyone's getting hammered. Um, and they're losing. And they're bargaining big concession agreements. Um, or they've tried 30 organizing vibes and they're not winning. Um, membership's shrinking. Um, yeah, and usually, but usually it takes, it usually takes serious, dense happenings to the existing rank and file, like big concession bargaining, um, that keeps happening and gets worse and worse and worse. That usually, if you've got a chance at reforming a union internally, that's usually one of the key criteria. Um, uh, that would lead people to sort of say, well, let's try, let's try this. Um, so I mean, I, I'm not, there's, to me, there's almost two questions. One is what distinguishes the model. Um, and I had the pleasure of mostly working for, well, starting to work in labor for unions that already had a philosophy that the purpose of the union was class struggle, essentially. I mean, we might dress it up in the U.S. because you say those words and we could all be in jail again. But, you know, (laughs) it's too late for that. We're on the record for it. But anyway, um, uh, you know, if the purpose of the union is class struggle is the kind of union I've mostly worked for. So I consider myself awfully lucky. But it's also that that's where I, you know, have sort of gone to work. Um, I have definitely been involved in changing existing unions. But where there wasn't a lot of there wasn't as much resistance as there was, like we have no idea how to do it. Like that's a more to me a more common place is like, we just don't have any idea how to do it, right? So, um, if, if something, yeah. that's, I mean, I guess my follow-up question on that would have, would have been that in 
um, in the book, in sort of the first couple chapters, you identify your approach with this long history that basically comes out of CIO organizing in the 30s, and that which you also rightly say was largely driven, especially on the ground, by basically socialist, communist, far-left organizers who had those skills and had developed them. Um, and we basically don't have that either, right? So th there's also a question with how do we yeah. develop those skills in organizers and the question of the relationship between the broader left and the union movement and, you know, the, the sort of weakness has gone together. I, you know, I don't know if you could just speak to that and, and, and that, uh, this idea of developing the organizers as well and without a left, without a sort of broad left that's committed to, to this that you can draw on, especially a large left, right? This is always my least favorite question, but I'm happy to take a stab at it. No, just because I, I, I and it's fine. I mean, it's a good one to, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty important one. But um, the question of the broad, I mean, I think, again, Canada is, uh, thank God for you right now, different than the U.S. Um, uh, and I think because, of, because after the McCarthyist sort of witch hunts in the U.S. Um, and the left being driven out of the unions, Certainly, that was long before I was born, and certainly I grew up in a culture where um, we don't have a strong tradition of sort of independent parties in the U.S. We just we don't. Yes, there are a few around, and et cetera, but um, it's it's it isn't in my adult experience what's driven myself and a lot of other people who might sort of self-identify as radical left progressive. I don't know what we are. Um, uh, I'm saying this not for Donald Trump's people, but you know I I, I haven't ever been a member of a party um, in the U.S. So. But I find myself in a long tradition of a lot of people who consider themselves leftists. And there's a huge network of us in the US trade union movement. Um, and we all talk all the time, because uh, it's too small of a crowd, you know what I mean? Right? We talk, we know who we are. You know, all you have to do is look at who you were trained by. Like there's essentially, who were you trained by? It's like the, when I meet an organizer in the US, I'm like, who are you trained by? And I literally, I know right then what kind of organizer they are, right? And that is actually true in the States. Like, if you can tell me who you were trained by, I can tell you what your organizing politics are. So I would say what's weird in the U.S. is that we've developed, and it's, and it's not sufficient. It's like not a sufficient, um, it's not sufficient, right? But there's a, a sort of big network of people um, in the U.S. who adhere to what I call sort of a class struggle theory of organizing, which, as I say in the book, you know, the nice thing about me getting a few years to sit down and read, which I really had never done before in any substantial way by going to grad school and taking a break. Uh, I called grad school taking a break. I still call it that. I was exhausted in 19 hours a day again. I had to like get back into speed of not sleeping, running an organizing campaign. So, but having the break and reading a lot did clarify for me that I was, um, that I was standing in a long line of a tradition that came from the Reds in the 1920s and 30s and 40s in the US. And you can really trace sort of the organizing approach they had and the organizing approach that I was trained in and that I have developed many other people on. So um, I'm not, I don't, I, I say this because I don't have the answer to how we do it. I know that there are many of us, and this is a, this is a very active conversation you might imagine right now. There are many of us who um, do know how to win. Um, and who actually know how to teach workers how to win, because that's the only way that we do win, is that we actually are replicating ourselves by doing intense skill development with rank-and-file people who are, you know, the organic leaders I think of as the natural organizers. They have capacity, ability, and we train them incredibly. Like, I, there's no difference in how I'm training 
the negotiations committees, which are the organizing committees right now in the hospital fights that we're in, from how I'm training the organizing staff. Um, the rank and file members are learning to do something called wall charting. Uh, the staff are learning how to wall chart. The rank and file leaders are being taught how to do a successful one-on-one -on -one organizing conversation with their coworkers. Same thing we had to teach the organizers. So to me, campaigns are the vehicle by which we can develop and train tens of thousands of people. They've always been the best vehicle. But the chicken and egg thing is like, my, you know, I don't know, I keep wanting uh, there to be an organization that actually very explicitly, which doesn't exist in the U.S., there is no organization in the U.S. that is actually explicitly doing hard work of teaching rank and file folks how to even win union elections, really, right? Because trying to win an internal union election requires all the same skill set as trying to beat a bad boss, right? Like you got to know who's an organic leader, sort out who's an activist versus a leader. You have to have the ability to recruit people who are not yet with you. Building big movements, which is what you know, bottom-up organizing is, um, there is a serious craft to it. So I think, it's a, I think there is a huge problem that we don't have, and, and we're seeing it right now in the U.S. under, for sure, the most dangerous regime of my lifetime um, in power, uh, that there, there's, not even an effect, there's not even an effective conversation happening in the U.S. movement right now about what the hell we're going to do. Like that's the, that is the, that's the crisis of, having, of not having parties that are effective parties that actually operate throughout the movement. Um, so, you know, we don't have them and look at the mess we're in, right? It's quite, it's quite serious. But on the one hand, I think it's really important to understand that organizing, deep organizing, real organizing, I don't know what words to use, right? But what I'm trying to define as organizing in the book, it is a craft. You do get better each time you do it. There is a lot of skill involved in it, but it is not rocket science. And everything I try and write and say is like, this isn't rocket science, but you actually do need to get apprentice or trained somehow from someone. Um, or you're not gonna have the most basic understanding of a bunch of the core stuff that we have to do in what I call a really hard fight. Most union fights in the US are just really hard fights. They look a lot like the Trump campaign in every workplace. Vicious, divisive, misogynist, sexist, racist, every division possible. I'm like, hey, this is a really familiar national campaign. They just ran it nationally and the boss won. So, um, uh, so I, don't, I think we need, you know, I don't, I don't I, I, I'm struggling with the answer to this one because I don't really, I don't get the chicken and the egg. I get that every place that a whole bunch of us are, are actually doing hard organizing campaigns, we actually do know how to teach people how to win. So there's definitely some art and science that has been passed down for many generations. We didn't invent it. We've all been apprenticed into it, and I think apprenticeship is the right word. That's why I call it a craft. You get apprenticed into the work of being able to win a really hard campaign and knowing what the boss is going to do at every step and staying ahead of them and teaching the workers to stay ahead of them and teaching the workers what the boss is going to do next. And so, you know, it's much smarter if we think about this. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, and the same skill set is required to sort of reform your union, right? So it's like, partly I think we do need a whole bunch of different ways to think about how do people get skilled up on this. Like what are the, I mean my personal best attempt at trying to contribute to this question is right here. <laughs> you know like I'm on, I'm on my second book of trying to have books that are in uh, common English, um, not inaccessible stuff that can't be read, uh, where I try and lay out in really clear terms what it takes to win in a really hard fight. You know so it's, a, but that's sort of pathetic, right? That I'm, there's not a broader sort of structure in the U.S. that I'm part of that's conscientiously trying to 
you know, we, we sort of are out there, but like yeah. we're having we're having haphazard get-togethers all over the U.S. right now, mm-hmm. trying to figure out the fact that the national leadership of our trade union movement doesn't have a clue what to do right now, and they're not unfortunately yet taking advice from sort of the more left organizers who know how to win. They're still actually taking advice from the pollsters who know how to lose. So, you know. There's a, there's a lot of problems. Um, the only good news I have is that we actually do know how to win. Um, and uh, that actually matters. It isn't like no one's out there who doesn't know how to win. We actually do know how to win. The question is how do we get more control of the resources to actually be able to build a broader movement to actually win more, right? That's the... Well, I, maybe I, I'll, I'll bring this um, down a level of abstraction just to because I think partly talking about the role that, um, you know, people who are either members of or inspired by party left left party politics and the, the role that they played in creating unions of a particular kind with a with a particular internal democrat more democratic culture and actually more effective more effective more more effective collective bargaining i yeah. mean it, i i think that is i, I yeah. was very pleased to see that Talk, talked about in your book, uh, it's you know research that I also am familiar with from my own work about yeah. how you know the purpose of the union is deeply connected to the forms internal forms that it it creates. Absolutely, that if you if you create a union that is for a transformative purpose, you're going to need different kinds of internal democratic structures. Uh, and uh, if you create a union that is primarily an insurance policy, right. you're going to create different kinds of internal structures. And so the question of purpose is very important. And the link to the um, those tr- those activists, if I could use that term, because that's my segue, those act party activists that were in the labor movement that carried that ideological perspective to their work was really important historically mm-hmm. in Canada and the U.S., mm-hmm. So that raises the question of the role of activists in all of this, because in the book you also make a very important distinction between activists and organic leaders, right? And we're sitting in a room of activists. Some of us might also be organic leaders, we don't know. But we're all probably activists. And you know we're the ones that are probably the most likely to be participating in the activities that you call the that are attached to or linked to the mobilizing model, right? Not not just in the war rooms, but you know if you need a demonstration to have a public face, right? We're the folks that would be on on demand for that. And I guess I want to I want to ask you about the relationship between activists and organic leaders because to an extent I think. Uh, and I certainly agree with you that our that as activists, we in some ways forget our own process of becoming politicized or coming to the kind of politics that we have. And uh, we maybe expect people who are not already politicized to either get it right away or get lost, right? And I think we also become very attached to the identity of being an activist. That that in itself, especially when your when our movement is, you know, on the ropes, there's some comfort in being part of an activist community and holding to that identity as something that sets us apart from people who haven't gotten it yet. And I think that actually produces some 
fairly problematic politics inside of workplaces and times inside inside union drives, etc. Because it 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 creates a certain like a self satisfaction. Exactly. When if if you're the if you're if you're the minority of people that show up. You know, and so, sometimes that's, that's a satisfying outcome, even though people would say, well, we want more people. It's a satisfying outcome because it reinforces our sense that we have figured it out. So I agree with you that as activists, we actually have to decenter ourselves to an extent from the process of organizing, right? That we're not, the target for engagement shouldn't be the already existing self-selected activist cadre because that's not enough for us to generate the kind of power that we need to win. But we also can't do without activists. And I think that the, 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 the history of the relationship between the parties' structures and the labor movement shows that you know, a big part of that work was carried out by activists with a certain worldview and a certain sense of the mission that they were on. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, maybe in general, but also in the concrete context, what the relationship is between activists who are self-selected, who already get it, and the folks who are the organic leaders and the rank and file. What, what's a, what's a, what is a kind of a typical engage, you know, relationship between those two groups? What's an ideal relationship? What, how, do we, how should activists... Uh, uh, use their already existing commitments in ways that are actually respectful of the fact that there are lots of people who don't already get it or see things differently but need to be activated in our movements. Do you I hope that makes sense? Yeah, although I, I think, um, I guess the first thing is uh, some confusion on the terminology, right? But mm -hmm. I want to try and simplify it a little bit by saying that in my view, um, People that you're calling activists from the parties in the 30s are, were organizers. So the, what's, the, the, what's the distinction a little bit, I think, is that um, this one is not written down in like some rule, but I'm just trying to generalize it outside of the workplace. When I talk about activists and organic leaders in a workplace, it's very specific. I can be extremely concrete about it. Activists are who want the union, who, who run up to us first, who probably called us because they want to form a union. Um, and as I say, in everywhere I go, they're very rarely the people who actually can get us, uh, who can get the power, can build the power to form the union, uh, because they don't hold the most respect among their coworkers, just as a general rule. What an organizer is doing, whether it's a rank and file organizer, which is what the communists and the socialists were doing in the 30s, is they went into the workforce, um, embedded in the workforce, took jobs in the workplace, didn't position themselves as activists at all, position themselves as common people, but who definitely had some training and skill, and went in um, to play a role of, uh, of trying to catalyze and organize ordinary people. So for me, there's some, and none of this is, I, all these definitions get, it gets a little bit dicey because the, the main thing I want to say is like, there isn't anyone in this room or on planet Earth who should feel like less important or not as something um, if I say, well, someone may be an activist versus an organic leader. It's it's, it has nothing to do with the value of all people in our movement. It's that there are different roles for all sorts of different people at different moments. And if you are trying to build an army, 
some people in the U.S. say to me, like, that's such a military term. I, right now, I am trying to build an army, just to be super clear. So and if we don't have one to stop the fascists that are taking our country over, we're in deep shit. So um, I have always seen my work as about building an army. Um, because high numbers and big numbers are what the working class has. Um, because the 1% is always going to have the resources, and the biggest resource among the non-1% are the masses. So for me, my, I feel like I've always been a general in the work, like a, like a general, like moving troops against capital. Um, and, and to do that, you have to spend your entire life preoccupied with talking to people who you've never met, don't know, don't know a thing about you, um, and engaging in really serious, lively, fun, organizing conversations with them. So like every day of my life, I, I don't choose. In fact, I'm getting um, a rap right now for sort of bad-mouthing the idea of small protests, which I don't mean to do. Again, it's like, it's, you know, I can be a little dichotomous when I'm talking but, or polarizing about it, but like having been arrested a gazillion times, like it's not, I mean, I did that a lot in my 20s and I just got really bored of seeing the same 20 people getting arrested on the bridge. It was like, so my entire life is really, it is, I am, I do want to spend most of my time talking to people who um, uh, don't have any um, pretense that they're part of a movement. That's actually who I want to talk to every single day of my life, and that's what I have devoted most of my life to. So um, you won't find me at a lot of sort of activist-centric meetings just because I, I'm, I think we have to build an army. Um, and in the 1930s in the United States, we actually built a functional army, basically, of the working class and beat the crap out of capital, and workers changed history for many decades in the United States. And they had a theory, and it was called a class struggle, and I still have it, and it's many, many years later, and we're still winning. So... Um, to me, the question, the, the question of the 30s to, to contemporary times in the U.S. and the role of the parties, like, we, we're doing the same thing. So the role is exactly the same. What I've been trying to clarify is the strategic position of the organizer in the 30s was to be inside. I think what's changed a little bit in the U.S. is that the strategic position of the organizer can be inside and it can be outside. That's where the you and what you and your coworkers choose to do comes in, right? It's being really clear about who we are in our role. I'm not going to pretend to be one with the workers when I'm like Jane, the professional organizer, who's got a Harvard something right now. You know what I mean? Like, so, so I think the strategic role of how you position yourself—that's a question, and that's a good debate and a fair debate. Again, I say in this book, when I analyze 1199 New England, one of the unions I used to work with, um, but I analyzed them in the years that I wasn't there, like. Uh, the organizer's role is definitely overt and transparent. It's also left and democratic. Um, and it's one of the most winning unions in the U.S. that strikes more than anybody else. So obviously the position of the organizer, I'm arguing, isn't a strategic question. The question is, what do you see your role as doing? And who do you value most? So to me, all of us need to spend most of our time not talking to each other and not talking to ourselves and not talking at people. Um, so whether you're positioned strategically inside the workplace or strategically outside the workplace, the question is, what do you wake up every morning wanting to do? Um, who do you want to wake up in the morning helping to sort of join the army versus like, um, uh, yeah. So it's, hard, it's, it's, it's a hard distinction, but for me, uh, we have to bring millions more, pe millions more people um, into the movement. And the only way to bring millions more people in is to train an incredibly high number of ordinary rank-and-file leaders how to do the work much better, basically how to become real organizers. And I think that's what our best campaigns in the states do. Um, and right now in Philadelphia, in the city I've been working in for more than half the year, um, there are thousands, thousands more 
thousands. I could probably give the exact number if I saw the wall charts today. There are thousands more workers who are actually trained in the skill of organizing their coworkers right now. That's a really big difference between going to the um, anti-democratic convention party rally that happened in Philadelphia that I didn't bother going to this summer. And people were like, hey, I didn't see you at the rally. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I was in a committee meeting with a bunch of workers in a hospital. Like, I just think if our role is to build an army of sorts, a giant, a giant front of people, because it takes that, right? I don't, <laughs> in really hard fights, capitalists fight with everything they have going for them. It is a war. I feel like there is a class war every day uh, in my country. I'll just speak for my country. I grew up in a brutal class war that we've been losing my entire life. Um, and so to get it so that we can actually contend with them for serious power means that we have to get millions more people involved. And the so that's the question of what is your priority, what's your focus, and then how do we do it, right? Like what's the skill set of how we actually do it? How do you go into a one-on-one -on -one conversation and have people come I think most people do know who's oppressing them, but how, how they come to see themselves as important in that process of being capable of doing something about it, of having an understanding of how to get together with their coworkers and actually change the situation that they're living in, like that's the piece of organizing that matters so much is how do people come to be more clear about why, they're, why they have four jobs between two of them trying to take care of the kids and they can't get home and see them and do homework with them and whatever else. Like, so the process of, of, of enabling people in a self-discovery about who the real oppressor is, and then a skill set that quickly teaches them the core three or four things that they need to know to bring thousands more into the movement successfully. Um, that's, um, I think for me, that's sort of the that's, the, that's the main objective difference between in a workplace who an organic leader is and who the pro-union activists are. Um, who are always great, and there's a million jobs we give them every day, but they can't lead their coworkers um, into struggle, not in a high fear moment, they can't. Um, and then the workers inside the workplace who actually can lead their workers through really scary moments, and the boss is like, I'm gonna fire if you put that button on, which we just had happening in, you know, two weeks ago in Philadelphia, right? We had a big sticker up where all the workers are putting on stickers in tons of hospitals, and lots of those moments when the boss comes up and says, your line manager, and says, take that sticker off or I'm sending you home. Thousands of these conversations happen in one day in the U.S. You know, an, an activist who, who hasn't spent their life trying to build relationships with their entire unit doesn't actually know how to carry people through that fear. But the organic leader who understands that their entire mission is to have deep relationships with all of their coworkers, and they already have them to begin with because they're very respected, can actually carry workers through a high fear moment like that. Um, so, yeah. No, so yeah, no, I, I, that, that's very helpful. And I, I think that, you know, I certainly wasn't trying to put words in your mouth in terms of saying like activists aren't important, mm -hmm. but I, but I, but I do think it is an important challenge to people who are self-identified activists. Your, your work is an important challenge to us because it does imply that we, that, that activists aren't, that it's not enough have an organization full of activists. It's definitely not enough to have an organization full of activists. It, it's why yeah. we're losing. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's like a, that's a, just a difficult thing for a lot of people to confront because, um, because, as I said, I think that activism isn't just a thing that one does. It's it becomes who one is, and I think that in a world that tells you that. Um, being a working class person or being a marginalized person, you're worthless. Activism is one way that we recapture a certain sense of worth, right? And so 
um, you know, it's, it's, there's an emotional component to, to adopting this strategic shift that, uh, that I just wanted to highlight because I think it does, it, it does limit not just when we're or, not just when new organizing is happening, but when a union is in place and what the internal dynamics of that organization are, who who ends up being in formal leadership roles, etc. Right? So so I just think it's real it, I, I appreciate your clarification, but I think that, that you that your work actually does present a real challenge to people who have already come to, um, it, it requires people to really rethink their role in their organizations. Yeah. Can I, can I ask something that just kind of riffs off that and maybe, so I, I was actually kind of surprised in some ways to see, um, there's a, so there's four case studies in your book and the last one, the, the first three are all big union fights that were one and the last one is about this organization called Make the Road NY, New York, in New York City, which is in the union, right? Not, it, it's basically a work, you know, like a worker center, worker action center, something like that. Um, and I think this is this kind of, it's the kind of place that also attracts activists, and it seems like it's the kind of activists who are trying to somehow apply this model, but not in a union setting, um, apply this model in a setting that isn't a big hospital with 7,000 workers, but that is the 10 stores along the high street that have precarious, I know we both hate the word precarious work, <laughs> but, you know, have the shitty, low-paid, unstable job that we've had for That's centuries. Yeah. My question, you know, it's, it's kind of how do, we, how do we fit in, again, speaking to a room of probably self-identified activists and all that, how do we fit in that work outside of the unions without doing this the separation between unions and community that you also talk about, but in, in places that aren't quite those unions and in those places that still are, to some extent, you know, more run by activists, say, or something like that. And how, and especially when you're talking about building up, you know, millions of people into an army, how, yeah. how does this part of the work also fit into it? Um, and to complicate things, places that can't strike or not normally can't use the strike weapon, which you again emphasize so much um, in the context of big union fights. Sure, um, and I'm, I assure you without knowing each of you by name that I'm sure I really like all of you, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, I think this is, this is the, except for you, maybe, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I think, uh, just so you're gonna find it, I say it in there somewhere, and I'm kidding, but I- um, There's a list I, of names. I, yeah, right. I think that, um, I think the main thing is this. The main distinction is that I am trying to like scream out to everyone uh, in the whole world is A, we have to build an army, one. Two, there's, a kind of, there's some ways to do it that work better than others. There just are. And I hope everyone learns them as fast as we can. And I'm still learning them. I learn them all the time, but there's some, there's some fundamentals to them. And the key one, the key one is, is, is your life work, is, whether it's your life passion or your paid work, your unpaid, whatever, but like, is what you are trying to do each day is bring more people who are not yet self-identified activists into the world to become activists or not um, versus talking to the, you know, what I call talking to the already decided, right? There's just, there's just way too much talking to the already with us, talking to the already committed, talking to the already decided um, in the U.S. 
I'll leave Ken out of it for a moment. Um, but in our country, mostly we're just talking to ourselves on the left and in the progressive activist community. And there's a, there's a different way to be, which is a very conscious way to be, which is um, to set out every day uh, to talk to people who are of very high intelligence all over the place and who are not yet with us because they don't self-select and come to a meeting. They aren't in our Twitter feed. They aren't connected to our Facebook pages. And there's gazillions of them out there. It's called the human population. Um, and in like a 45-minute conversation with pretty much almost all of them in my lifetime, they can come fairly quickly to the same conclusion I have, that capitalism is a really big problem without saying it quite that way. They can actually get to that understanding fairly quickly in a nice face-to-face -face conversation, um, where I do almost none of the talking and they do almost all of it, right? 70-30 rule. Um, with activists, it's like 90% talking, 10% listening on a good day. With organizers, it's 30% talking, 70% listening, at least in our training model. So um, uh, it's a really different approach to the world and to the universe every day. Um, so, so one big distinction is, are we trying to, are we spending our lives every day respecting and honoring the intelligence of ordinary people and believing that they are of such high intelligence that we need them all in the movement, that we're capable of bringing them into the movement? I, for one, think, um, I, for one, have really spent a lifetime of engaging with people who are uh, just amazing. Just like I could just go name by name of like thousands of workers right now who are in the struggle in Philadelphia, who seven months ago would never have been in anyone's Twitter feed, Facebook feed, whatever it is, or come to anything, and they all are. They went, a bunch of them, to the Democratic Convention protest without me, right? Because I was talking to some workers who weren't yet there. So um, it's, literally, it's literally, you know, in a couple of months, adding 5,700 to the roster of who's coming versus not, right? Who can be mobilized for a big action and a big march. It's just that we spend too much time not trying to concentrate on how do we expand our army, expand the universe, expand the base of people. So... Um, I think that's the big thing. I'm, I put Make the Road in for a reason. The group Make the Road New York. I was um, pleasantly surprised. Not like... To, yeah. To, yeah. I put them in there for a reason in the end um, because they are actually consciously trying to organize the working class outside of the workplace. And they're focused on a set of workers who really have a very transient life experience. And there's a lot of people who think they're doing that these days also um, who I think are not doing it all that effectively. Again, staff run, top down, all those things. And I think what I saw at Make the Road New York, which is a one specific group, is an organization that is actually, um, might be changing a little bit now because they're getting more and more successful, but they are the closest to a union uh, that isn't a union of all the community-based formations or worker center formations. I call them a hybrid worker center formation in the book. They, um, you know, first of all, to the question of resources and staff, I mean, they have 195 staff and they're a community organization in New York City. So they've got a ton of organizers who are doing, guess what, going out every day um, and literally like meeting workers who are going through bad conditions, who are in all these odd little green grocers in New York and a little shoe store and a little, like these little stores all over New York City. And they're enabling workers to build grassroots, bottom-up, geographic, rank-and-file organizing committees where it is actually workers. Like, I describe part of what's different. So they have a system, and it's all word of mouth, right? They have tens of thousands of members now, and it's all word of mouth, and it's all within the immigrant community. It's an immigrant worker center by origins. Um, and I went to lots of their meetings to observe, just sat in the back of the room, you know, all the meetings in Spanish, and just sat in the back of the room listening to, like, see what was going on in these meetings. They gave me total unfettered access to the work they were doing. And, like, so someone comes into the weekly meeting. It's called the Workers in Action Meeting. So that was an Action meeting. And 
they've come because they know someone who met someone who knows someone, totally not people on any activist network, and they just heard that this boss just ripped them off. Uh, they paid them for five hours, not 15 hours for their, for their big 15-hour job that week. Um, and they're getting totally screwed because they're undocumented immigrants. And normally they just, it's called wage theft. They just loot, use their money. In this, in this organization's case, they go in, they have to come to a big meeting with a bunch of other workers who've been through the same thing. And the first thing they do in the meeting is they don't go to a lawyer, which is what most of these groups in the U.S. are, a bunch of lawyer, nice lefty lawyers who help you. You come to a big meeting of other workers, and they all sit in the room, and, and you tell the story about the boss that just ripped you off. And the action of the meeting is to plan how many people in that room are going to go with that worker the next morning and march in the boss and demand fair pay or threaten their ass to bring a bigger march down the next day. And a whole bunch of workers who are not having any legal status in America uh, and who have no union are marching en masse down to that workplace the next day to do direct action against a local grocery store, creating a huge scene outside that about 60% of the time gets the worker paid right away. Now, are they building permanent power? Well, you ask me. The meetings got bigger and bigger every time I went, right? So they're actually empowering people to take the first step as a collective action to go build human solidarity and demand immediate action from a boss who just screwed them. That's sort of why, when I looked at them, I thought they're different than most of the similar groups like that in the U.S., because most of the groups like that aren't doing that in the U.S., and they don't have thousands of people showing up at meetings. Um, and that organization, as an example of what an organizing approach is versus a mobilizing approach, um, at the big immigrant rights march in the United States in 2006, this one community-based organization that follows what I think is an organizing tradition, right, because it's training ordinary people to become organizers or activists, but organizers because they're going to train more people to go talk to more people who are not in the movement or the organization yet. They had 42 packed buses to one march in Washington, D.C., and there wasn't a single trade union out of all of New York City's biggest unions who got more than about 12 or 15 buses to the march in Washington, right? So, so I'm trying to say it doesn't have to be a union, though it sure is helpful. I make a big distinction between structure-based and non-structured work, I think organizing in a hospital is um, much better, actually, than a much, in some ways hard, but much easier than that. So, but I do, I do look at it because, and I try and show, like, what is it about their approach that makes them an organizing approach versus a mobilizing approach? And the example I just gave is a really good one of that, I think. My debate in the movement is trying to spark a debate among the people who believe that they're actually still trying to grow the movement. Because in in the universe of the unions in the United States that are trying to actually expand the movement, uh, it's mostly being done in ways that I think are not proving successful. Um, and success to me is a lot of things. It is, not, it, is, it is most definitely not just like, did you increase your rank and file dues paying base yesterday? That's what it's come down to in the US. Did we expand the number of workers paying dues to the union? And if we've never met them, never talked to them, never addressed their issue, never helped them understand, and so we've now learned a lesson, although I thought we learned it in 2010 in the United States after a disastrous election series we had in 2010 that put Scott Walker in in Wisconsin and put Schneider in in Michigan and eventually put Rauner in in the second round of it in 2014 in Illinois and put the most vicious anti-worker people in power in a bunch of key states where the numbers are that 30, you know, in the Scott Walker in, in Wisconsin, the most vicious anti-union governor, who's, you know, the favorite name to become labor secretary now under Trump, the most vicious anti-union SOB uh, there is, 38% um, of union households voted to reinstate him. And the current number in the U.S. is that 48% of union households 
voted for Trump. So if you think a model of hot shit, top-down corporate campaigning that grows the dues base is working, I got a major problem with that right now, and I don't think it's working. And unless we go back to real bottom-up strategies, where we actually go out to engage the supermajority of workers all over the place, whether it's make the road doing it geographically with an immigrant workforce that doesn't really have constant workplaces, or whether it's sitting in hospitals, hotels, casinos, whatever it is, car plants, all of it, schools, like... Um, if we don't go out and have really serious conversations and help people think out loud about why um, are things going so wrong um, for their families, you know, we're going to elect more uh, Fords and Trumps and morons and demagogues and people who promise with the strong man arm, I'm going to fix your problems for you, as opposed to people realizing um, who's to cause. Who's, the blame of the, who's, who's really to blame for what's happening in their lives? I think it's a 20-year failed strategy within a set of unions that claim to be trying to... The problem is this. I can say it in the book. The language went from organizing in 1995, and we took over the AFL-CIO in the United States. We were an organizing movement within about three years. The language, back to language and how important it is, the language went from... Literally, even at SEIU saying we're the organizing union, they just dropped that word right quick a few years later and didn't even say it anymore, which is probably more honest, to growth. We have to grow. It became Wall Street language. What are our metrics? How are we growing? Now, as an organizer, I can tell you every single day by looking at a bunch of wall charts that the workers are all looking at with me. No wizardry there. It's all an open process. Are, they, are the workers expanding the number of conversations they're having and actually themselves growing? their army themselves um, or not. Um, and since the campaigns that I have had the pleasure of being involved in are mostly winning campaigns, it seems to me there really is a choice. I'm arguing in this book, it is a total strategic choice of if you want to actually engage the majority of workers who then do understand when they go into the voting booth uh, who might be better to vote for and who they could tell their family to vote for and talk to them about it at the kitchen table um, versus a model that is done by a bunch of wizards and grows the dues-paying base um, and then loses the entire country 20 years later. I think it's a failed model. <laughs> that was a recording from the Toronto Book Launch for Jane McAlevey's new book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.